Reconstructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom, be the truth with Good morning and welcome to the War Room. I'm Bill Evans, your host. I'm visiting today in Georgetown, Texas with Martin Sobriti, who's the Vice President of Chalcedon Foundation. Uh, Martin is a, um, a programmer, a physicist, a composer, a theologian, and we wanted to visit with him today in our typical War Room organic, free-flowing style to see what sorts of gems we could pan out of this stream and uh, how it might benefit you all as God's people. So, Martin, welcome to the War Room. Pleasure to be here, Bill. A beautiful home, beautiful area. There's nothing like Central Texas Hill Country. Um, I know uh, you're originally hailed from Southern California, and you know uh, Jason Sanchez well because it was uh, your uh, gracious permission to utilize the materials that you were custodians of uh, that uh, started Reconstructionist Radio. Well, we certainly don't want to sit on Dr. Restrepo's laurels. We want to extend uh, their reach. And it made no sense to say no to someone who had the zeal for the cause to say, can we get more of God's word and its application out to the people? And uh, I just had to say, absolutely, what can I do to expedite that? Yeah, we don't want to be a dead end to truth. Um, you, your work today in, in terms of, obviously you have your, your, your J-O-B, what you do to, to pay the bills and to, and, 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 I, and that's probably, I need to step back and say that's not really entirely true because you're extending Christ's kingdom and you're worshiping in your work. Right. I think it's important that we see vocation as a dominant place where Christians can apply their faith and that they're not second-class ministers of the gospel because they're not in a pulpit. I think uh, the reformers who believed in the priesthood of all believers would have been aghast at the idea that, that we had second-class citizens. Uh, part of the problem, of course, is that that idea was foisted on Christians because folks have been told that uh, that's all worldly stuff. And, uh, there is a distinction, and that distinction is the critical one. And you're only doing serious work for Christ if you're directly doing Christian ministry. There is no Christian ministry in work or vocation. And I think that is a, an appalling approach to things because everything brought subject to Christ, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And whatsoever we do is to be done to God's glory. And I think this is why there's some fascinating passages in Scripture that I've appealed to that tell us exactly uh, how this goes down. There's a, uh, a proverb that says even the uh, plowing of the wicked is evil. Uh, and that's an astonishing comment to say, well, that's the case, that even plowing something, uh, agricultural activity like that, isn't neutral, then nothing's neutral. And uh, there's a counterpoint to that comment about the plowing of the wicked you know, being evil. Uh, and that counterpoint is found in Isaiah 28. In the final verses, it talks about uh, the righteous and how he plows and gives him explain, explain, the instruction how his uh, creator teaches him and instructs him 
in the proper processes to do plowing and uh, harvesting of crops. So at this point, we see God reaching out and saying, there's nothing that my uh, holy hand doesn't touch. Everything gives glory back to me. And that includes your vocation. That includes even every line of code a programmer might be writing for a computer can reflect the glory of God in the code that he wrote in the, our DNA, for example. It uh, um, doesn't exactly match God's glory. We don't make any such insane things. But it does bow the knee and reflect God's creative wisdom in our creative work because we are creators under him. We make things from raw materials. God makes things from nothing. That's the advantage he has over us. Still, he gives us the raw materials and says, get busy. And so to say there is no Christian component to that is to yield the entire world to the devil. And I think that's what Dr. Rashtuni was so opposed to when he set the Chalcedon Foundation up in 1965, was to say the world does not belong to the devil. The world and its fullness uh, is owned by God, it's his property, and therefore he has a claim on it being fruitful for him, and that includes us in our vocations. So bringing the faith into our vocations is a key way in which we can uh, start to see the kingdom actually uh, spread into places where perhaps it hadn't yet spread. And I think this is key, uh, and this is why at Chalcedon, I'm the one guy who's not necessarily the social theorist. People always say, well, Christian Reconstruction, that's social theory. And it's because we tend to present on economics and, and statism and things in this order. But to say that this lump soul, uh, uh, total of it, some of it is wrong because we also are interested in the hard sciences and the soft sciences and the life sciences and the culture and the arts. If any, this is where Van Til and the others have been very clear, if there's any one button that an atheist could push, that if he pushed it, he would not have to confront the testimony of God's existence and, and authority over him, he would have his finger in that button 24-7, would never release it. So we must not have any disciplines in the entire realm of human enterprise that are exempt from Christian Reconstruction. So he is left without excuse. So whatever the thing is that you're doing, you must conquer it for Christ so that that cannot become a place a hiding place, if you will, for the wicked to have a refuge from the testimony of Christ. That's, that's an interesting. That's an interesting consideration. You know, we've all seen the meme on Facebook or social media, the quote from Martin Luther. I guess he was a proto-reconstructionist that the Christian shoemaker does not glorify God by putting crosses on his shoes, but by making good shoes. That's right. And uh, it is encouragement. I think. Would you say it would be a latent? It be a a, a fruit of Pietism that would. Many of us, I, I confess myself, uh, oftentimes when we, if we recap our day, as we as we lay lay down at, to take the gift of sleep from the Lord, and we want to try to recap and we want to say, was my day a good day? Was it a fruitful day? And it's 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 due to our, the 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 tentacles of Pietism. That tells us, well, did I have a quiet time? Did I review my did I review my verses of scripture? Did I read, you know, four chapters from my McShane reading list? And if I did those things and I didn't curse at anybody and I didn't lose my temper and I didn't uh, allow uh, impure thoughts to linger in my imagination for any longer than it took the Holy Spirit to alert me, then it was a good day. And, and that's pietistic thinking because a man who went out and worked hard from sunup to sundown and built a home or built a fence or mucked out stalls in a barn, uh, he could do that for the glory of God and God could absolutely take delight 
in every bead of sweat that came from his brow. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's really the key is that there's nothing that is not an uh, area that where Christ's dominion can be exercised in a God-glorifying way. And that uh, surprises folks a lot, because, uh, but that's the key. If we miss that, then our entire purpose in life, what is it? It, it then becomes morbid introspection, like you said. If you had come at the end of the day and said, well, I didn't curse at anybody. So now we're talking about negatives and abstractions and stuff, and we end up in a Neoplatonic world, because then we're saying, uh, in essence, and I just had a discussion yesterday with someone about this, you know, the notion that you know, the, the body, the material thing, is the inferior or a sinful realm, and the spiritual is the higher domain. And they don't see that God made man as a unity and that all of us, man, you know, body and soul, are to come in union together uh, to do the work of, uh, that has been given us to do, right? And that's why the scriptures are clear. You, know, you see a man who's diligent in his labors, he shall stand before kings, right? Uh, this is the promise of Proverbs, uh, that the hand of the diligent shall bear rule. Why is it so important that people are diligent in their labors? Because... Uh, that shows uh, what's one of the attributes of God is that he is thorough and diligent in everything that he does. It's the image of God in us, and when we expand upon that, when we act upon it consciously, not like uh, a plant might do so, uh, it's glorifying to God. It's like you say, he takes delight in those who consecrate their every labor and bend every effort and breath to glorifying him and what they do and by doing something well. But in fact, even Paul talks about these, this notion of excellence in the book of Philippians, right? Uh, and we, therefore, should have the highest standards. I think this is terrible nowadays that uh, Gary North made a tremendous quote. I loved it. He said, don't do anything second-rate in the name of Jesus. And you, that, that sinks in. That means, well, if I'm supposed to do everything in the name of Jesus, because, of course, I can't. Somebody say, well, today's sin day, and I'm going to do everything that I can so no one goes down that path. Well, that means everything has to be first-rate. That means that, that we shouldn't be laboring to do second-rate things. Uh, that means that we are known by our fruits. Man, the tree is known by its fruits. And second-rate work in the name of Christ, it makes Christ look bad. It gives reason for the heathen to, to blaspheme if the Christian shoemaker's shoe falls apart sooner than the atheist's shoe does. Then what good did that man's faith do because the work of his hands didn't stand the test of time? We read this tremendous promise in Scripture about the righteous that their works shall follow them. Well, some works you may not want to have follow you if they're of low quality. You'd say, I'm kind of ashamed of these things. I'm thinking a couple thoughts are running in my mind as you're talking. One is, um, there's three things. I'll just bring them out and then let you address them. One is that uh, imagine uh, two monuments, maybe monuments to Caesar located in the District of Columbia, one produced by a God-hater and another produced by a God-lover. That God would have a, although they may contain similar architecture or, or, or artisanship, it would be possible for God to love a work produced by one of his children and hate a similar work produced by one of his enemies. That's one thought. The other thought was is that if work all work has, whether it be the lowliest manual labor or the most um, scholastic uh, um, work, you know, laboratory or, or what have, classroom, if, if 
and, and, and this was a, one of the things that I learned from Gary North is that oftentimes when we think of the image of God, I'm taking a little rabbit trail here. The image of God is not, is not only in the idea of us being sentient beings, of having volition and intellect and personality, but it was from Gary North that I learned that the first thing we know about God is that he is a worker, that he is a creator, yeah. a gardener. And so that the image of God in man also needs to be, a good bit of emphasis needs to be placed on uh, that God is purposed that we be productive uh, because he wants us to be like him. Uh, but given that fact that that work is very close to the heart of God because it's implicit in his character and his nature as a workman then those men are those men and women around us all day long toiling for a bigger home to make ends meet whatever it may be they're, where they're not uh, consciously living for or working for Christ and his glory or his kingdom nevertheless as workers I could see that as an evangelistic bridge, we could say, you know, you work hard and your workmanship is really excellent by human standards. Would you like to know what would make your work more wonderful? What would make it even better and would give you greater enjoyment from it? Is that as if you were doing it for the one who made you? And that'd be a great evangelistic bridge, I would think. To the people around us who are scurrying and working several jobs, or you know, and, and, and yet are not and are not not only are they heaping up wrath, they're not reaping any of the fruit that can derive from labor if it's done to the glory of God. Now, let me ask you this question: The Puritans had that concept right. Did they go? Did they run off in the ditch though? Somehow, it's always possible for zeal to go in the wrong direction. Um, I like what you had to say about the evangelical component in work because too often when one walks up to a, uh, we, we see this mode of evangelism, uh, you confront someone with the gospel and, he, and there's no relationship to the rest of their day. It's something like you need to be in church on a Sunday morning all of a sudden. So we have now this segregated thing and the relevance of the Bible, God's word, to the rest of his life, including his job, is denied. It's not brought to the table versus being front and center. You know, you say God shows us he's an example of a worker. One of the first things he did was introduce light into darkness, light that couldn't be overcome. So by the same token, shouldn't the Christian be introducing light into dark corners of people's lives, including their vocational lives, saying, I see that you, know, you uh, work such and so at this job. Uh, God actually says something about, uh, say, banking. You're a great banker. But God has something to say about the banking system, how to do it properly, how not to be using fractional reserve banking, for example, how you should be promoting hard money and have backed up. So all of a sudden we introduce some validity. We say the Word of God, uh, it has teeth in this area. It's, and all of a sudden when people recognize that the Word of God speaks to them not just on Sunday morning in the warmth of a pew, but rather, uh, when they are at, at work at a computer screen or out in the field with a pickaxe, that God speaks, God sees, God expects, God empowers, that, that suddenly brings God home. One of the most profound things I think that Dr. Bonson wrote was he said this. He says, if you told a Muslim 
that his faith in Allah was not to be 24-7, he'd laugh in your face. You know, it has to be 24-7 or, or Allah's not their God. But Christians are willing to put up with a God that's not 24-7. So if we present the 24-7 God who, who inhabits eternity, to put uh, Paul's phrase on it, uh, then that now all of a sudden that's a living God that someone's dealing with. And so, like you say, there's a, a bridge there. He said, I work with you in the same area. I can tell you how this affects us. And again, I can tell you that there's light to be had and there's hope and there's mercy um, because, of course, there's a defect in everything that we're doing. But we can rectify that. Well, you know, as a driver, you know, I get a chance to com commiserate and communicate with other drivers on the road via a radio. And we'll oftentimes have opportunities for evangelism and testifying and, and commenting on various different things. And typically, you get a response like, hey, I didn't know this was Sunday. In other words, keep your message confined to Sunday mm -hmm. in four walls. And I'd say, you know, gee, has is it, is it ever occurred to y'all that uh, the God who created the heavens and the earth has something to say about how we drive a truck, how we care for the people around us, how we do our job, how we have successful relationships with the business vendors and receivers and shippers and people that we deal with on a daily basis and how we relate to our family when we're away from home on the phone and, and all these things. And I said, that's daily. That's, and I said, do you think God just left us to grope in the dark after he created this big, wonderful cosmos? Or do you think he has something to say? And generally, you can tell from the, from the lack of any sort of organized response that that's a thought that is almost foreign in American Right. In American mentality. But you see, the frame of mind, you hear it on uh, television, if you bother to listen to TV. I haven't had it since 1998, and I advise everyone else to get rid of it, too. But they press the notion that the Christian God needs to be kept in the ghetto with the Christians as a Sunday morning phenomenon. The faith must stay between your ears and not extend your hands and your fingertips into the world. Uh, so therefore, you have a ghettoized God and a ghettoized faith. And that's acceptable because there should be no social component in our culture for Christianity. This is the atheist view because uh, under humanism, that you cannot have two competing faiths. So it, we have to um, select in favor of humanism, which is a non-theistic religion, as the Supreme Court called it. And, and that's the problem. What you're hearing is that, that blowback saying, hey, put your God back into the ghetto, please. How, you know, because the biggest crime of a Christian is being effective. And if he's being effective in an area that has cultural uh, dominance written all over it, then look out. You know, the, the attacks will become swift and furious, and God's um, support of you will also be just as strong against those attacks. But we can expect that. If suddenly someone set up a full reserve bank and it was successful, they'd be attacked just because it's, it's biblically based. No, it, it's because now we have a competing thing. If we have a set up Christian schools and homeschooling, it'll be attacked because now it's conflicting with the notion that you know, it's supposed to be a state prerogative only. You're supposed to stay in your ghetto and, and oh, you can teach anything you want in Sunday school, maybe, because we're going to control who you can hire as a Sunday school teacher. Uh, and the rest of the week, the kids should be over here. It was just announced that uh, Mr. King, the um, Secretary of Education for the country, is now concerned about homeschoolers not getting the full range of uh, options that really American students need to have. And it's because they think that these students really are wards of the state and a property of the state and uh, wards of the village. You know, it takes a village and the village will pillage our kids' uh, faith if they can. So all this works together to say, uh, 
where Christian Reconstructionists are on the vanguard of pushing the faith back into a 24-7 mode. And when you do that, things change. And people don't like that change because the trend is to be more, to put more and more of your faith in the God of the state. Mm -hmm. And when you suddenly discredit the state as a valid God, that he's got not only clay feet, but that he's hurting you, and he's hurting your kids, and he doesn't care, um, but he's got all your money, so there's not much you can do about it. At that point, you have to uh, sponsor a countermeasure, as Dr. Rishtuni said. Sponsor a countermeasure. You want your kids out of public schools? Guess what? There's bad news. Christian's going to have to pay the stupid taxes for the public school he won't even use, so he's paying twice. That's because we're in a hole that we dug ourselves because of dereliction. One of the big messages of Christian Reconstruction, and it's not a friendly part of the message, is we've done this to ourselves. We're in the boat we are in because we've been asleep at the switch for decades, and we're reaping what we sown, which is the whirlwind. And so the way, there's a way out, but it's not an easy way out. Too many Christians want an easy way out. Oh, I want a tax revolution. I want this, that, and the other. And we can instantly resolve all these problems overnight with revolution. But that's not God's way out. God's never had those kind of ways out for his people. Uh, you work your way out. And uh, you work with faithfulness. So you're going to then set up your home school or your Christian school. You're going to pay twice for your education to get out of the hole. But if more and more people do this, it'll work. You, uh, we work with uh, Dr. Bruce Short out of Houston, as you know. We published his book, uh, Harsh Truth About Public Schools. Interesting story. He took that to all the major Christian publishers, Sondervan, etc. They all said, no, thank you. We won't publish this book. Why? Because all those publishers are owned by bigger publishing companies that print public school textbooks. So they're not going to kick over their own rice bowl. So Cal Seedon publishes this book, right? So getting back to Dr. Bruce Short, I hope I didn't just derail my thought with that aside, that digression. Uh, his point was, oh yeah, that in, uh, in Texas, for example, there's a thing known as a snapshot day, a certain day uh, where they take the school's population, the, the student count, and if it's not up to a certain threshold, that school must close because they're not meeting the required minimum student body count to keep it open. Well, it turns out that almost all the schools in Texas are within, you know, 30 to 100 kids shy of closure. They're ready. They're on the verge of collapse. What would push them over into, all the way into total collapse and, and forcing legally to close these public schools? Well, one thing they could do it is if the Baptists took all their kids out of public schools. So what does Dr. Short do? He introduces that resolution at the Southern Baptist Convention to pull all the public, the kids, Baptist kids out of public schools, which would, in fact, collapse the school systems on snapshot day. It's already there. We can see the victory right there. You can touch it. You can taste it. And what happens is that they cut short and prevent the votes. So they cannot, uh, the hoi polloi Baptists cannot vote on this measure. They stop it from going to a vote. So, like Dr. Brown, uh, Short says, I'm essentially a bomb thrower. I'm throwing bombs. But they're intercepting the bombs. And who's intercepting the bombs? Our own side is blocking us from being affected. So this is a self-inflicted injury that Christians are doing. We actually have it in, in us to do these things. We are on the, on the edge, the very edge of these successes, culturally, and uh, of making this big splash and we are afraid of victory. Rushdie did a fantastic sermon on fear of victory, where he talks about uh, the king who uh, refused uh, to drive all the arrows into the ground. It's something in Second Kings three, 
And uh, Elisha says, okay, I will help you. You will have victory over Syria, right? And so I will put my hands on your hands, and I'll go ahead and shoot the arrows. Instead of shooting the entire quiver full of arrows, signifying a complete victory over Syria, he shot two or three, and that was it. Drove the prophet ballistic. He went nuts. He says, what on earth are you doing? He says, you should have driven the entire thing. Now you're going to only have a partial victory. He didn't want victory, because victory and freedom entail responsibility. Christians are averse to responsibility. You know this. Mm -hmm. And Chalcedon is selling increased responsibility, actually the correct responsibility Christians should have. And as a consequence, it's a hard sell. No one wants to hear this message. And the reason was because this particular king had a better plan. His intention was to say, look, I don't want to have total victory over Syria because it serves as a buffer state between me and Ashur or Assyria farther away. So if I just keep them weak but don't defeat them, then I don't have to deal with the other problem. Because true, every time you have one victory, there's a bigger problem behind it. And if you are fearful, you're going to set up your little buffer states. You're going to want partial victories. You're going to have Vietnams all over. And that's what Christians have been doing for time immemorial, setting up a bunch of Vietnams. Vietnam was not versus something that happened in Indochina. It was Christians doing this since the 18th century, having partial victories and, and trying to concede and compromise with the world. And every set of compromise always pushes the faith back. And every time a Christian comes and says, but this is not what God requires, he's considered to be harsh and intolerant because his message is like the prophets. And that's the extent that people thought Rushton is like a prophet because he comes at his hard and fast without apology. Well, we need to apologize to God for uh, taking his word and making it of non-effect and avoiding it. Well, you know, it, uh, it occurred to me as you were talking earlier, and, and we obviously the term Christian Reconstruction doesn't, if, if you're not a part of that philosophy, it's not immediately apparent what you're getting at. Mm. You know, what, Christian Reconstruction will reconstruct what? Um, I was talking to uh, Stephen C. Perks earlier today by phone, mm -hmm. and we, I was telling him about a, a friend of mine who has been a, a part of a parachurch ministry for 40 years. He's been a he's paid staff, uh, it's a well-known worldwide ministry uh, that's famous for making disciples and memorizing scripture so people know who I'm talking about. And when I was talking to my friend, who is a godly man, and has memorized, I mean, just vast, portions of scripture and I was talking to him about the Great Commission and it occurred to me that the way most Christians perceive the Great Commission is like a chain letter you know you get you 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 this you want this person to get saved so he can lead the next person to Christ who can lead the next person to Christ and who lead and it's a daisy chain it's like dominoes or setting up a, a chain of dominoes and knocking them over but there's never any concept of building anything comprehensive or global and, 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 and a, a monument to the God who started this whole thing. And, 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 and for a guy whose life calling has been ostensibly to quote unquote make disciples, he doesn't even agree with me on what it means, what disciples are even made for. They're not just made to make other disciples, they're made to build a city on a hill that will be a monument to the glory of God. And so, you know, it's not even, it doesn't even occur to most people what we're even talking about when we talk about Christian reconstruction. And then when you tell them, and you know, before we reconstruct anything substantial, there's going to have to be a good bit of deconstruction. Well, then, then, they, then they're 
convinced that we're that we're anarchists and and terrorists. But I like the name of your magazine, and I think it really does point us, and it's helpful, and and it's faith for all of life. And so I said, what's the alternative? Faith for part of life? Exactly. That's the ghettoized faith we talked about. The Sunday-only, the compartmentalized faith, where you partition it off. Ernestine made this comment before. He says, you know, humanism tends to infect every sphere, and the social life of man is intended to be purely humanistic. So the only time that's left aside from a humanistic point of view that's legit for the faith to be exercised is your Sunday morning in the church. And uh, if you follow the rules, we won't tax the church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that's exactly right. In Isaiah 58, 12, we read, And they that shall be of thee shall build. Right? It continues on, Build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, etc. And thou shalt uh, either call the restorer, uh, the past, or, uh, repair the breach, the restorer, the past to dwell in. But I always focus on those opening words. They that shall be of thee shall build. What will you know them by? They are building. They are building the future. And are the verse in Daniel, the, those people who know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And do exploits. Yeah. And in the, those exploits may be modest to us, but they mean something to God because it means to him, in this little area where no one else can see it but me and the guy who's working, he is taking dominion. He is bringing that under my lordship. He is casting his crown in that sphere as he, uh, for example, is working on the back of that gargoyle's head up on that cathedral. He knows I see it. He's going to glorify God with his sculpture work up there, even though no human being can see it. You know, we always say, well, you know, is it really that important that man can't see something? Because, and this is what Rushton also brings out. I was going to end up quoting him because he seems to be the guy who figured this all out earlier than we did. He says, man always operates in front of an audience. And that's a toxic, poisonous situation to always be operating in terms of an audience because it's effective. See, it works. It works even politically as we're seeing nowadays to operate in terms of an audience. But if God is your audience, things are very, very different. You see, because then you're operating not in terms of your fear of man, which is your audience, but in terms of fear of God. Then you don't care what the audience thinks, right? So this is why Rushton didn't care uh, what people thought of what he was doing because he knew he was working for God. And if you're oriented that way, you become unstoppable. There's a component in your walk that now is empowered in a way that people can't, you know, if you don't fear death and you don't fear man, now what? What have they got over you? Nothing. Mm-hmm. Right? So now, uh, then the state's at a loss, saying, well, we don't know how to stop these guys. And I'm sure we should stop them. You know, maybe they're wise enough to be a Gamaliel saying, well, if it's a God, who can stop them? And I think that's really the point. If it is of God, this is unstoppable. The Christian Reconstructionists, if they got scriptures right, and I have a reason to believe that that can be exegetically established, that's what my main focus is, is exegesis of scripture, then we're on the winning side, notwithstanding all the attacks, notwithstanding the debates, notwithstanding even if debates go against us because we had a bad protagonist on the the podium up there who didn't know his stuff. Sometimes we can be our own worst enemies as Christian Reconstructionists, but if we're out there building and we're promoting others to build, and we're saying your faith is 24-7, and they grasp that concept, that every thought is to be captive, to be into Christ, then we move forward. Then we have answers to the, the situations in the world. Because then we say, if the faith is 24-7, then the Bible has something to say about what we're seeing in the news today. It has something to say about, say, the topic of justice, which I alluded to you earlier before we started the tape. Uh, it has concrete things that then we need to bring to the table to help unpack 
what we see. Because once, once you can discern the signs of the times, what Israel ought to do, to quote that famous passage in Judges about the sons of Issachar, then you're in a better boat. Then you can say, instead of being uh, uh, confused and living in confusion, having what's called confusion of face, the phrase in Daniel 9, uh, we have a confidence of faces because we have a confidence in Christ and we see his hand despite the darkness. We see the, the hand of Christ working through the darkness to shape it and to wrestle it into the form he wants to finally bring it to. Through many troubles and tribulations we get there. But he get, we get to there. See, that's the point is that it's to victory that we fight our way. Is there a struggle? Yes, there is. But the struggle has an end and, that's, and Christians need to then lose their fear of man, not operate in terms of an audience, operate in terms of the eye of God on them, and that'll change everything. I want to interject something here and give credit to my good friend uh, Jack Campbell for, um, for really embedding this, this, this um, moniker in my consciousness that, uh, about how we need to build, how do we need to, our focus needs to be trans-generational, hmm. multi-generational, tra- cross-cultural and multi-generational. And uh, going back to something you said, and and what must we be about? What must we be doing? I'm imagining a uh, none of us anticipate once we we, we w- once we get our brain wrapped around and we accept um, theoretically that God's intent is to build this glorious city to fill the earth with His knowledge as the water covers the sea, and to use ordinary people to accomplish this extraordinary feat for his own glory, but that this was not going to be done in our lifetime. It's not going to be accomplished short. And so whereby so much of Christian activity in the institutional sense is, 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 is building legacies, my legacy, or building a big ministry that will last or whatever, or maybe, maybe they're not even thinking when they're building these big mega media ministries, they're not even thinking about who am I going to leave this to? Certainly, uh, Andy Stanley has proven to be a disappointment to his father in terms of what, what, when he picked up the baton, he dropped it immediately. Hmm. Um, I'm thinking in terms of multi-generational and what sorts of activities, strategies, uh, tactics would be filling the playbook of modern-day Christian Reconstructionists if we believe that what we do today matters, but it will not, but we will not see it in our lifetime. Yeah, that's huge. Again, I quoted from Isaiah fifty-eight twelve, and then in one of the parts, middle of the verse, it says, "Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations." Now, notice, notice there, foundations. You know, the toughest part to build on a building is the foundations, because you got to dig and excavate. And in this case, it says you, uh, you're building old waste places. You're picking cesspools. And, and this is what we're in. We're living in a world that's a moral, scriptural cesspool. And you have to convert the cesspool into paradise, right? And God's saying, I give you the Holy Spirit. That's all you're going to need. And you need to be faithful. And then you will be able to raise up foundations in the cesspool for, for many generations. And everything will be made beautiful. And the desert shall blossom as the crocus. But it's multi-generation. And being a foundation work, it's really we're going to be building these and excavating these foundations with a toothpick or a teaspoon. That's the tough part. You know, lots of folks have commented on the pilgrims that came over in the Mayflower and said, these folks, and I've heard this comment from Marshall Foster, from Ronald Kirk, from Bernal Hall and Rosemary Lee Slater, they all said they were willing to be stepping stones. 
willing to be stepping stones. And just that one phrase, are you willing to be a stepping stone or do you want everything to begin and end with you and your glory? Because if you want to be a stepping stone, guess what? You're going to get stepped on. You're going to be, have to deny something for yourself, for your children and grandchildren. And I want to talk about that grandchildren thing. Restaurant, told this great story. I think it was in a San Francisco uh, Korean, uh, it was a Presbyterian uh, gentleman who was approached to become an elder in, the, in this church. And uh, they said, look, you know, your family's in order. Your children are all great Christians. He says, we have to wait till the grandchildren. Only then will I know that I actually raised my kids right. And when the grandchildren were all in the faith and faithfully then, and only then, which is 20-some years later, did he accept the call to become an elder. Nowadays, we lay our hands on very swiftly on young men, and off they go to make all the same mistakes all over again that could have been forbidden if we'd had a higher view of our callings in this instance. So at last, whatever the merits and demerits of that one Korean man's view was, at least he held the position of elders so highly in regard that he was not willing to take it until he saw in his grandchildren that he had that generational integrity that he had imprinted on his kids, that he actually raised them in a biblical way. And so he's willing to wait two generations. So he's willing to be a stepping stone again. He, he has this long view. And that long view is lacking in Christians because we expect instant gratification. We're not looking to be faithful for children and children's children, even though the promises of God extend to children and our children's children. That phrase repeats repeatedly on Scripture. You know something that I think, Bill, if you let me uh, take a little aside, I, I just am so amused by this. There is a film being made by John Malkovich and Richard Rodriguez, the filmmaker, called Louis Thirteenth, And they made this film, they spent a bunch of money on it, and it's going to be sealed in a vault for 100 years. No one can see it for 100 years. They made this film for people who will not be alive uh, for a while. Uh, they are yet to be born, right? And that's like a phrase out of uh, Psalm 22, uh, people not yet born. And, and you should see the outrage online. What an idiotic, stupid thing these people are doing. You know, how could you possibly make a film and not show it to us? Because we're the ones who should be seeing it. Because only the moment matters. The existential moment matters. What happens 100 years from now is irrelevant to us. And so they're screaming in shock that this film is actually sealed away from them not to see. And so they're poo-pooing. It must be a crummy film. Of course, these are great filmmakers uh, in the secular world, and they went ahead and did this astonishing thing. Now, of course, they're promoting a cognac, a alcoholic beverage that takes 100 years to do, so it's part of a promotion. So there's a stunt to it. I'm not saying it's, it's going to be uh, Oscar-level filmmaking, but the point is that they went through all the motions and spent the money to do something that no one today is going to see, right? It's going to be seen 100 years from now. They were willing to do that and put it aside. And how many people today with our, I want to see it now, I want to have it now mentality, are willing to even consider doing something that outrageous. Because the blowback will be instantaneous for us too. How could you spend any money on something that's a long-term project? Well, I'll tell you, uh, Bill, you know who spends money on long-term projects? Satan does. He's got lots of long-term plans. And if Christians only have short-term plans, guess, who's, guess whose plans are the ones that get into play culturally in the long-term? The one who had plans in the first place. So if you follow Hal Lindsey and say we should live like people who don't expect to be around much longer, then Satan's plans will dominate. That's a self-fulfilling mm. prophecy. But if you're looking for the long term, guess whose plans are going to come into play? Christians will have a, a bright future because they actually knew that the Lord God is the God of peasant, past, present, and future. And they're willing to be that stepping stone. But you have to have character 
Christian character, and our character is at an all-time low as Christians. That's obvious in the fact that Christians can't even get along with one another, that we're at each other's throats and devouring one another and backbiting each other. I'll just jump in long enough to think about and this is just amusing here. I'm just musing, and, 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 uh, mm-hmm. and this is probably one of those esoteric. But imagine uh, we, we all pay lip service. I do. We pay lip service to um, that day when we stand before God and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And it, wouldn't it be interesting if the things that God is takes greatest delight in or not anything that you're known for here on earth. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, I forget who said that, you know, what a man is, you know, when he's on his knees alone before God, that's what he is and nothing else. Or I think maybe it was Thomas Jefferson even, I hate to quote it, Jefferson here, but I think character is what you look like in the dark. Yeah. And, and so that it's possible that the things that God will take the greatest delight in will be things that we didn't, that no one else ever saw and uh, and if we lived like that, you know, I was thinking, we were praying last night, uh, we have a weekly, I'll, I'll put in a cheap plug here for our weekly prayer hotline. We want to have, we're going to do it again tonight at 2300 um, Eastern time, it's 2200 Central. Uh, and on, if you're in the Reconstructionist Radio uh, group, you'll see the numbers on there. We want to do that. This is not live, of course, so this will be for two weeks hence. But we were praying, you know, uh, for we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves, your servants, for his sake. In other words, we're willing to be the ones that bend over and let you climb up the wall using our back as the stepping stone and you get to take the flag and we don't care. We'll, we'll, you know, that, that is where we empty ourselves and become of no repute. That's, that's Christ likeness. Emptying ourselves is about as Christ-like as you get, isn't it? I know that uh, one of my brothers, Michael Payne, admitted a, a big film event, Christian film event. Uh, he got to the point, his exasperation and his willingness to be used, he says, you know, if I'm good for nothing else, just throw me at the enemy. Take my body and fling me at the enemy. If that's what I'm good for, you do that. At least that much. If that's all I can, I'm, willing to, I'm able to contribute, I'll, I want to contribute to that. So that's the kind of attitude we have to have. By the way, winding back a little bit to the notion that when you're doing this kind of thing, no one's seeing it, and, and those who do might think you're, it's, it's folly. But you know, it's funny, God talks about the things that we don't see either. Uh, one of the most interesting sermons I've ever heard was uh, by Andrew Sandlin, and he picked a verse out of Job, where it says, And God sent rain into the wilderness where no man is. He says in the message, and he brought it down after 30 minutes of exposition, is God's plans are bigger than man. It's bigger than what man can see. And if God's plans are bigger than man can see, then maybe our plans should be bigger than what people can see too. So there's something to be said for the fact that God operates beyond the realm of human vision, and so we should have the same notion that it doesn't matter if anyone sees it, because God sees it, and I know that this is the right thing to do because the Word of God says if I'm to approach this subject, I should take it from this angle and I should deliver it back to God. See, that's the point is that we're supposed to receive what God gives us and then deliver it back improved. You know, the world was not empty when we came into it, Rishton, he says, and it shouldn't be more empty for us having passed through it. We should have added to it and made it more productive and more meaningful and, and more blessed and less cursed. Reversing the curse, as the phrase goes. I'm going to ask you some questions here, keeping the ball moving. I'm going to ask you some questions and ask, ask to discuss some 
things that you have an interest in. We talked. I, I think we talked about it before we actually started the, the podcast about music. Yeah. And, uh, and 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 knowing God through art and artistic perfection. And I also want to talk a, a little bit about jumping, piggybacking off the faith for all of life phrase to talking about some things that we were originally going to talk about, and that is key obstacles that are before the people of God today, strongholds of the enemy that need to be conquered and decimated and and also replaced with with a proper structure uh, in terms of whether it be the medical tyranny, uh, educational tyranny, we've already talked about homeschooling, sure. uh, e- e- economics, you know, we need to get away from the fiat yeah. currency, you know, uh, uh, and I had an interview with uh, James Wesley Rawls, he suggested that the next currency be 223 and 7.62, and, uh, you know, NATO, you know, that, that, that things that you can actually use to defeat your enemies are the things that we need to turn into the, the, the uh, medium of exchange in, the, in, 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 in that apocalyptic sort of scenario. End of life as we know it. Not the end of life, just end of life as we know it here. Uh, and I think it needs to be differentiated. So I'm really intrigued, and I was talking again earlier with Stephen about the Christianity as a social order, and is really a parallel social order. I think the term is imperial, imperium or something. Yes. So a, a kingdom within a kingdom, superior to the kingdom that it's within. You know, it's and if you really think about that, the butterfly is far superior to the to the to the caterpillar. But uh, it's also consuming the kingdom, the exterior kingdom, and, and building it into itself. See, that's the point: is that the that rock cut without hands consumes the rest of the the mountain, right? The statue, uh, and it, it integrates it into itself. So, before we get into that, I wanted you to just take a, a step aside and talk about Rushus Rushduni, and, and because you were an associate of his for over twenty years, yeah. closely. Yes. And and I don't have a son here to talk to. I could I'd ask Mark, but how is it that this man? Uh, I mean, you can't attribute to anything but the grace of God, obviously. But how did he? How was he able to put so many things together and to get so much right and do it virtually under the radar and without exciting the the blood of everybody that was around him? Well, I don't think he was initially uh, under the radar for openers. Christianity Today knew full well what he was about, and they basically yanked him. They, uh, he was suppressed. He lost uh, one of his uh, sponsors there, uh, left the picture, I think passed away, and uh, the subsequent board basically decided that they were going to blackball him. You know, one of the most interesting examples of that, and I've mentioned it in lectures, is that the, they're running a front-page story, Christianity Today, on the Puritans in America by Terrell Elniff. And the original article by Elnif included a bunch of footnotes footnoting the sources to Rushduni. When it actually went to print in the magazine, guess what was missing? Every single Rushduni footnote was expunged and removed, and the whole, all of them renumbered, much to the shock of the author. So he was suppressed. Rushduni was absolutely suppressed. It was an academic um, mafia, if you will. So there's an obstacle that he had to face. So he said, okay, I'm going to have to go around academia because the academicians have decided that they're going to um, uh, suppress the Word of God. They're going to um, restrict it and, 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 put, uh, and, and, and cha- put it in bondage, if you will. 
and therefore he went to intelligent laymen instead. The Chalcedon Foundation that he founded was basically the move to say, uh, it's not going to work going through the normal channels. The normal channels are already polluted and poisoned. You know, so the people in charge of the church of the, the the ship of church in Christendom had already compromised so badly that the message had to go around the pulpits, if you will, of America, which is uh, a sad tale to say, to say the least. Uh, how was he able to put everything together? I think because he stood, you quote uh, others, scientists, on the shoulders of giants. He had he stood at the apex of the Calvinist position. And basically, he was consistently applying the notion of God's sovereignty over everything. But not just taking it over sovereignty over salvation, but over the kings, right? That he's king of kings and lord of lords. He took that notion seriously. And if that's the case, then everything has to be brought in subjection to Christ, like Hebrews 2 talks about, all things in subjection under him. And therefore, he realized, well, that's the case. Then everything is, is, actually has its unity in Christ and God. These, all these subjects which are normally fragmented and taught as fragmented in humanistic teachings are actually united, have a fundamental unity that's denied conscientiously by atheistic instruction and education techniques. And, and we see this in many critiques of modern education. He says, well, we teach everything in a fragmented way. We even teach it in a fragmented series of periods uh, divided by bells. It's the lesson of bells that uh, John Taylor Gatto talks about in his books, Dumbing Us Down. Uh, and this is what Rishtuni says, it's not fragmented, it's all tied together. And once you perceive that it's all tied together, then the connections start to follow. And he's able to then, as he reads each subsequent book, able to integrate it back into place, saying there is a fundamental underlying unity to all things. And it finds its unity not in the world, but in the creator who made it. And so bring things all back in reference to the word of God, and his creative word, and his law word, and seeing every word of God is relevant ties it together. So you can make all the connections once you realize there's a basis and a motivation and justification for doing it. No one else had the motivation to even consider it. There was inklings of this in the past. Some folks have started to talk about it. But when you jump from Calvin to Kuiper to Van Til to Rushduni, finally the whole program is in place. Finally we have someone who has the encyclopedic ability to bring it all in who had the support to become a scholar from the God, for the Lord by his wife and by those who supported Chalcedon, who spent his time on the reservation for eight and a half years, uh, accumulating books and reading and understanding what was going on. And so he became the man who was the almost a one-man clearinghouse for all this stuff. We're going to be hard-pressed to find another Grashtuni. I don't think we need to find another Rashtuni. I think what we need to do is to build on what Rashtuni did and not sit on the laurels. The way we opened this conversation, the last thing we want to do is sit on those laurels. He would roll over his grave, as the phrase would go, if he knew that we were just uh, repackaging his stuff and not uh, um, saying, okay, now, what do we do in uh, medicine? What do we do in uh, the arts? What do we do over here in this field? And then the second, third generation people learn, figure out the application, because he just was going to point the way. He said, here's examples of this. And that's why when I came on board, I was talking about the issues of music initially. It was one of the first things they were interested in what I had to say about systematic theology and in music. I said, here's an area where uh, the ability to do Christian reconstruction of any kind has been categorically denied. It's a purely humanistic thing. And even when I first put out uh, writings on this topic, other Christian reconstructionists of all things saying, we don't believe there's any reason to have a program as uh, serious as Mr. Cerberti advocates, saying... Uh, literacy in music requires teaching our kids in school to write music. 
You see, my definition and the normal definition of literacy is the ability to read and write something, right? Like English. But in music, we say, well, we just want to have intelligent consumers. Well, if all you're doing is consuming, there's no such thing as dominion, because dominion is creation when it comes to music, not just recreation and consumption. Consumption, you know, you got to create. You know, and Christians have been lax in this whole area. We've been casual consumers. We've been couch potatoing in the music area. And it's no wonder that we've fallen from the high point of Bach, who died in 1750, who did take dominion over music as a Christian reconstructionist would have, uh, and extending it in ways that nobody else had even conceived of, to show that it's possible. And even to this day, people marvel at his achievements, saying it's astonishing how one mind did, did this. But he had the motivation. He said, everything I'm doing is to the glory of God. Here's another thing. We talked about work and diligence. You know what Bach said? His, and he's regarded as, uh, as probably one of the... There's two things that are known as the greatest achievement of the human mind. And they always compete, when, which one's first and second place. Einstein, relativity. Bach, the art of the fugue. Those are the two highest achievements of the human mind, human mind as generally understood. And Bach said this about his achievements. He says... What I did, I achieved by working hard. Anyone who works as hard as I did will achieve as much. He didn't say it was that he had a gift. He said, I worked hard. This is a craft. It's not an art. Music is a craft. Later, German composer Hindemith made a point saying, Bach is right. I'm going to call my book The Craft of Musical Composition. It's a craft. Crafts can be taught. You look in uh, second, uh, what is first chronicle, second chronicle is 25.8. I get the verse right. Um, where it says the various scores of musicians in the t temple, he says, and they were all under the hand of their father for instruction in music. It was a craft conveyed from son to son. Well, guess what? Bach was a had a father uh, who was a composer, and a grandfather was a composer, and he had sons and great-grandsons uh, who were composers. In fact, Bach, of Bach's sons, eight were great composers. How'd that happen? It's not in the genes. It's because he taught them. He he expected big things of his kids. He, had, he let out exercises for them to do it. So he had a program of musical literacy that has not been seen since. And so Christians might get serious about Christian reconstruction of music. Box your guy. We already have the high watermark. It was a Christian who known as the fifth evangelist because of his work was so profoundly Christian in orientation. And we've lost track of that. We've, we've retreated, and it's not just a retreat, it's a rout, because all music is now horribly humanistic. And then when you have fellow Christian reconstructionists saying, well, we don't want to uh, rock the boat, we should just be casual consumers, that commits us to the existing humanistic repertoire. So there's no formula for a Christian reconstruction unless you then say, uh, we have to then think, rethink this. And that's what Christian reconstruction begins. Rethink it. We put it back on a biblical foundation. Start building again. Yeah, what what you're what you're making me think of here as you're talking is not even really so much the the essence of what what Bach created through his work, but what you said. Something else you said about his grandfather had been a composer, his father was a composer, yeah. and several generations later. And today, our concept of thinking multi generationally again is that, you know, father might be a this, the son might work in a completely unrelated field and have no interest whatsoever in following in the career path of his father. But if that's the case, let's say your father was a great uh, real estate entrepreneur and your son wants to become a, a physician. There's nothing wrong with that. That's obviously a... a, a but that father can't, I mean, and there'll still be character lessons that he can convey to his son, but 
if you're working in the, in the in the medieval age, for instance, when you had guilds, when you had fathers, you took your name from what your father did. Yeah. That was your identity. You might have, you said, we've been coopers and all my families have been coopers. And so you made barrels and you made better barrels and you made better barrels than anybody else because this was your family trade and, and you perfected it over generations, not just... So when you, and it seems to me that when, and I'm certainly, I've been one of the world's greatest failures in terms of my parenting, so I'm not anybody to emulate. But as I'm thinking about it from the outside looking in and thinking that when you follow in a line, let's say Bach, of grandfather, father, Bach, and then later generations, you have all that to build upon. You have all of their, the pride, the legacy, the skill, the things they learned, the things they learned. I remember what Mark Twain once said, it's important that we learn from the mistakes of others because none of us live long enough to make them all ourselves. <laughs> and, but the point is, is that if, if, if parenting and child rearing, if, if it included inculcating in the next generation the interest and the desire and the, and the realization that it's a marvelous thing if you you don't have to distinguish yourself from your father by doing something completely different. Standing on his shoulders is not standing in his shadow. Right. And so that if fathers and mothers would self-consciously groom and train their children, little girls to be great mothers and homemakers and, and entrepreneurs in the, in the domestic uh, industry, and, and, and fathers to... To, to take their children to work and, 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 and instill in them a love for what they do and an appreciation of the value of doing it, not just to make a living, but to make a legacy, to make and to and, and to build a civilization. And and it seemed like that might be because in America we we really it's like it's a value it's like a it's like a. Um, we really highly value the fact that, oh, no, my children don't do anything like, well, you know, I did this, but, but I've got it. one child does this, one child does this. And listen, and, and those are, I guess, callings, and people make their own way in the providence of God. But it does seem like if you're going to build long-term, it's like cathedral building. Yes. You know, uh, you, a cathedral is not a project for one generation. Mm-hmm. And we're, instead of building metal buildings, we need to be building cathedrals. I mean, symbolically. Let me tell you how powerful Bach was, is that um, there have been proposals, because he actually divided music into two eras, before him and after him. That's how pivotal a figure Bach was. And proposals have been made to actually destroy Bach and destroy all his works and remove them from the, from the repertoire because he cast such a long shadow. There's no way to eradicate his impact on music. You see, it is so... If more Christians were as faithful as Bach, and Bach had a difficult time of it. I mean, there was not easy street for Bach. He was being underpaid routinely. He had a big family he had to support. Uh, he was not regarded as a good composer at the time, you see. And he's dealing with, with uh, kids' choirs that are out of tune and so in cold, dusty churches. He did this fantastic work that has stood the test of time, still regarded now as the greatest achievements in music ever and under the miserable conditions. But God saw, and God protected that, that legacy, and God gave us this legacy. And what do Christians do? We just casually sit on the couch and enjoy it. Oh, Bach. Rather than, oh, there's our marching orders. Bach, let's get going. 
let's teach Bach to our kids so they can replicate and go beyond. Because what Bach intended was, in this greatest work I just told you about, the Art of the Fugue, was an instructional treatise, how to do it. So others would follow his footsteps. He said, this is how you write fugues, people. I'll show you how. So you can write fugues. But who followed? Few. Hardly anybody. Christians got this great gift bequested to us by the, one of the masters of music who showed the way. And we threw the, the, the map under the bus and lost it in the, in the glove compartment somewhere. So Christian reconstruction is, let's get these maps back out of the glove compartment. Let's trace our way back to where we should start. And I've been calling for this in music, saying music literacy can bring us back to where Bach, so we're back to the starting point where he gave us. Instead of just lollygagging along for two and a half centuries into the disasters that have happened to music, you know, it actually got disintegrated so that harmony and tonality were destroyed ultimately in the early 20th century. And so there's a big mismatch between popular music and art music and symphonies, which is very few people can appreciate because it uh, is an abstract, a high, super hyper-rational uh, mesh of tones and sounds rather than melodic, harmonic stuff like uh, most people associate with music. So there's a lot to be said about this area, and I think the last thing Christians should be in any area is simply in, uh, informed consumers. I think we need to be creators. We need to be builders Bach was a builder. He gave us tools to keep building, and we threw the tools away. So they, they rot for a couple of centuries. Are we surprised at the result of this, Bill? I'm not surprised. Well, this is not on video. This is just audio. But I can tell the listeners that if you want to see Martin passionate and happy about something, get him talking about Johann Sebastian Bach. <laughs> but uh, as we close out this, and we didn't really even talk about some of the stuff that we plan to talk about, which means well, you got to have you on another time one day. Sure, sure. But I uh, want to give you a chance to, um, as we do at the end of every episode, uh, you spent a lot of time researching an ep um, a man and the misjustice uh, done toward him as was a physician in Massachusetts, and we don't have enough time left in the episode to mm -hmm. discuss it now, but, it, but people can find it in your... It's been an ongoing series. Yes. I think you've had 19 or has it been 19? 15 or 16. 15, 16 uh, um, um, installments on uh, Martin following the misjustice that's done been done to this uh, uh, physician in, in Massachusetts who uh, was basically uh, discredited and I guess in prison because he was doing it better than the, than, than the uh, government and intelligentsia. Yeah. But which just underscores a topic that we do want to talk in greater specificity and <clears throat> in greater breadth at another time, and that is uh, the slavish uh, devotion that that believers have to the medical mafia and that medicine as it's currently practiced in the United States by the FDA, Big Pharma, and the AMA is is really just another control mechanism. Uh, humanistic to the core uh, and designed to not only uh, impoverish us physically but to impoverish us financially and, uh, and ultimately to control us and and that's something that Martin's written a, a great deal about and I want so I want to give him this last little closing few minutes here to promote the work of uh, Chalcedon and Faith for All of Life, the magazine, and why it's important that people be subscribing to it and receiving it. Right. Well, basically, it's a clearinghouse of all the um, big trends that are going on in terms of um, 
people taking every thought captive to the beings of Christ. In the case of Dr. Kishore, uh, he had an alternative to the statist approach to medicine. Uh, the state actually exhibits its indifference to its patients because it doesn't care uh, to actually cure the problem. It just wants to make the problem go away uh, and not have a public face. And that's uh, been the biggest problem that we've had with that. Um, and, and plus the biblical categories of sobriety have long since been shot in terms of that. So Dr. Kishore using more, more conventional, simplistic medicine, low, what he calls low-tech, not rocket science, low-tech medicine, has actually resolved the issues of how to get someone over uh, and healed from the, the ravages of one of the worst uh, medications like uh, heroin and things on the disorder, the illicit drugs. But like Dr. Gary North has told us, you know, first law of politics is anything that government touches, it ruins, right? And so medicine also has been contaminated by the state. One of the ways it does that, of course, is to support um, big things like the FDA and regulate, and regulation always ends up uh, creating winners and losers. Uh, and the second you create winners and losers, you create constituencies that have interests. And I think you can all, what happens there, of course, is that the state is far removed from its proper domain, which is justice. That's really what the state's only proper function is, the, the, the sword, the civil magistrate's sword. So once it invokes these other things, then it gives state power to uh, what used to be voluntary guilds, like medicine originally was, to control its own membership um, to high, and hold them to high standards so that they really weren't quacks. But in the name of anti-quackery, we've actually uh, promoted quackery and bad solutions, and uh, of course the entire catastrophe with uh, chiropractic and the war that the AMA waged on them is, is shows that uh, there's a lot of, uh, what would I say, protection of rice bowls going on, and it is always under the pretext of protecting you. You know, we want to protect your kids, so we have to take them out of your home school and put them here. So this false notion of protecting the consumer, when the consumer, uh, that's not the job necessarily, of the state. There are better ways to achieve this in the private enterprise because competition does provide uh, exactly what you need so that all options can compete fairly and fully toe-to-toe. Uh, -to -toe. And this is not what um, modern guilds that have state uh, support behind them do. So in essence, the Chalcedon Foundation is about pointing out all these weaknesses in how humanism does things, what it consigns us to in terms of loss of our freedoms and liberties. Uh, and, and further, how it puts us into an ever-shrinking Christian ghetto as a consequence. Versus the Word of God expanding and freeing and liberating every area, we find ourselves more and more tyrannized and, in ch and chained up and in bonds, ambassadors in bonds, as you will. And so the magazine, if you subscribe to it, and it's all the issues, back issues are available online, as well as all our books are free online. You can read them at calcedon.edu. Um, it's a, just a tremendous storehouse. It's a powerful tool. The entire website's being rebuilt over the next year to even be a more powerful tool um, to make it possible for Christians to be fully equipped for the kingdom's work. And this is a cathedral building ministry in yes. the sense that you're dealing with big ideas, big themes, uh, multi-generational stuff. You don't intend, I presume, in the spirit of our earlier discussion, is that Faith for All of Life magazine does not presume to be the final word, but, it, but you're wanting to set brush fires in the minds right. of men. Launching point. I'll just give you one point we chatted before uh, when, when we met. I said, I'm big on this idea of justice. All justice in Scripture is individual justice. 
there's no such thing as group justice. In humanism, there's only group justice. Individual justice must be slain on the altar of the group. Collectivism must dominate. I've even seen humanistic tomes where they say we must drive out of the minds of our of students the notion that justice is individual. The, just, the individual must cave in to the needs of the group. So therefore, it's okay for a group of protesters to flood onto a freeway because the individual rights of the motorists are, do not trump that of the group that's protesting and has perhaps a legitimate grief. But any time that you have group justice of any kind, individual justice must be denied. You cannot have both. And so the Bible promotes individual justice. That's true justice because only individuals actually have property and lives and families and wives and things that need to be protected by God's law. So when you have group justice and you have collectivism, and uh, a whole different mindset comes into play. It's anti-biblical to the core. And we're paying a huge price this day because it's these group constituencies that are being to appeal to. And, and we have to undercut that whole thing. So what Chalcedon is also doing is promoting the notion that when Jesus says in Matthew 12, 20, that the Messiah, he comes to lead justice to victory, it's justice for individuals, biblical justice. Do not follow the multitude, especially to do evil. Individual justice is what the scripture is all about because that's the only true justice. Anything else, humanistic justice is always going to be group justice and it's injustice to individuals. It's injustice to God. And so that's one of the main themes that Chalcedon's pushing is Christ came right, to make us. And the magazine process. subscription is about what per year? It's free for anyone who asks. Uh, but you can donate $30 a year or 25 I think, if you wanted to cover the cost of printing. But we don't deny subscription to anyone who wants it. And it's, a high, and it's a high quality uh, piece of work, too. It's, we like to think so. We appreciate you, Martin, for joining us. Hopefully we continue to provide inspiration and tools, uh, resources through these men and women, uh, generations of young believers who identify as reconstructionists, doers of the word, people who are, have a faith for all of life. Hopefully we'll have... Uh, many opportunities to have Martin on again to explore some of these other issues here on The War Room. Thank you for joining us in The War Room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2, By My Soul Among Lions. Thank you.